The New Testament reading is in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. That's page 808 in the Q Bible. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the, king, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of, Ju of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, another week of Christmas in, in May, which is a special bonus. Um, and as always, you know, we remember that it's the Word of God that calls, that collects, that creates, that crafts the church, specifically in the promise of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. So anticipation and in confidence of, of hearing that promise in this text today, let us come before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that we also would come to seek this child with, gra with glad and with grateful hearts. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, this is an interesting passage, and, and in this passage, we encounter some of the more interesting figures in the scripture. The, the ESV that we read from, it calls these figures the, the wise men. And in the sermon, I'm, I'm going to call them with a, a very common title in the Christian tradition, which is that of, of magi. And that's a kind of Greek rendering of the, uh, of the Greek magoi. And we have to ask ourselves, who are these magi? Who are these mysterious figures? And to be honest, we're, we're not entirely clear uh, very often they're put forward as, as magicians or astrologers, but, but we have to be careful here because the only background that we're actually given about these figures is that they come from the East. And we also have to remember that in the law of God, any kind of, of divination, be it through astrology, through sorcery, through something else, well, that's strictly forbidden. So when we come to the Magi and we try to figure out who they are, what are we to do? 
Well, one thing we've talked about before is, is the analogy of, of faith. This notion, this rule of reading Scripture, wherein Scripture interprets Scripture, so where we find something unclear in one passage, we should look around the whole canon, the whole biblical text, to see if there's some other passage that might cast light upon this unclearness that we find here. And in particular, there's two Old Testament accounts that are particularly helpful. And the first is the account of, of Balaam. Um, if you're familiar with or if you remember that account, the people of Israel, they're, they're wandering through the wilderness, and Balaam, he's hired by Balak, the king of Moab, and he's hired to curse Israel. And Balaam is tempted by riches against the instruction of God, and he eventually accepts this proposal. But each time Balaam actually tries to curse the people of Israel, what happens is that he blesses them with the words of the Lord. And on the fourth and final time that this happens, we find this in Balaam's oracle. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And the Christian tradition has long read this prophecy of, of Balaam, this prophecy from Numbers 24, this prophecy that Balaam gives against his own intentions. We've long understood this as a prophecy of Jesus Christ. Christ is that star who will rise out of Jacob, who will rise out of Israel. And here the star imagery connects with the very star that we see the Magi following in Matthew chapter 2. And in earlier sermons, one thing we've talked a lot about is the fact that Matthew is specifically presenting the life of Christ as the fulfillment of the story of Israel. And in Matthew 2, what we find is the fulfillment of Balaam's word. That's what we find in this account of the Magi following the star. One thing we've, we've also talked about is that Matthew will often use uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, and in the Septuagint, in this Greek translation, we never come across the word magi, but I believe we're meant to understand Balaam as a kind of precursor to these magi. He's one who's outside of the people of Israel, who seeks to know the things of God. But of course, in Balaam's case, he does this in the wrong way. He cares more for riches and for status than for true and proper worship of God. And, and even more, uh, Philo of, of Alexandria, he was a Hellenistic Jewish philosopher, a contemporary of Matthew, and commenting on this account of Balaam in the Old Testament, he actually calls Balaam a magus. That's, that's the singular form of, of magi. So there's a Jewish tradition of which Matthew himself is a part that understands Balaam as a kind of magi. And in this way, Balaam's prophecy, it's not just about Christ, but it's also about the very magi who will come to visit Christ in Matthew 2. Balaam actually introduces the prophecy about the star that we just read by saying this, The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. And strictly speaking, Balaam does not hear nor heed the words of God. He, he only speaks them, and he does so against his will. And when God does actually address Balaam, Balaam disobeys God. 
Even more, we don't see Balaam falling down before the Almighty God. So who is Balaam speaking for? Well, I believe he's speaking for the Magi who will come to visit Christ. By hearing the words of God, the scriptures, they find that Christ is to be born in Bethlehem and they fall down before this child in worship. We'll return later to that, but before we do, I want to mention one more Old Testament account that's very helpful in understanding the Magi. Again, Matthew will often use the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, and there is actually another account where we find the word, the Greek word, Magi. And that's in the book of Daniel. The Magi are those who were advisors to the kings of Babylon. And in the context of of that situation, we might actually understand them as astrologers, as magicians, as enchanters. As one commentator writes, they were Daniel's enemies, whom Daniel's narratives portray in a negative light as selfish, incompetent, and brutal pagans. And the context of Babylon is very, very important here. And that's because in Isaiah 39, we find an account of King Hezekiah. He's actually welcoming visitors from Babylon, envoys from Babylon, and he's showing them all of the treasures of Judah. And we find in the text, Hezekiah showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. But this displeased the Lord, and Isaiah tells Hezekiah that because you have done this, the Babylonians will take all of these treasures. They will actually carry them back to Babylon. And this includes the treasures of the temple. Because in Daniel 5, we find that the golden vessels and the golden cups of the temple are actually being used for lavish, irreverent, and pagan feasting. And so we find that the treasures of the temple are taken to Babylon, and these magi are no better than Balaam. They're self-seeking, irreverent. They care only for their comfort, for money, for status. And so how does this connect to Matthew 2? Well, the magi in Matthew 2, they're not taking treasures from God, but to God. They're presenting treasures to God and presenting treasures to Christ, the child. And the Christian tradition has long understood this act as the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 60. Isaiah, speaking of the nation, says, They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. New Testament scholar Patrick Schreiner, he he offers an insightful way of, of reading what's going on here, how Matthew understands this fulfillment in the connection with the wayward magi that we find in Babylon. Schreiner writes, Matthew may be indicating that the gifts the magi bring here are the true coming of Jerusalem's treasures from exile. Thus, with the coming of the magi, the treasures of the temple are returning. And I believe Schreiner is absolutely right here, especially if we think about the passage we looked at last week. What's the name given to Christ? Emmanuel, God with us. And the temple is the place where God and humanity meet. And now here we find the full and greatest temple, God with us in Jesus Christ. But again, we we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Like Balaam from the east, from Ammon, Like the Magi from the east, from Babylon, 
these magi in Matthew 2 have also come from the east, and they've come to the people of God. But they've come to undo the evil works of self-interest and sorcery that their, their precursors practiced. There's actually a scene in, in The Lord of the Rings. It's both in the movie and it's in the books, where the th- three of the characters, Aragorn, Legolas, and, and Gimli, they're, they're wandering through the forest, and they come upon a white wizard. And they take this wizard to be the evil Saruman. And Saruman is, is the white wizard. Well, he's the head of the wizard order, but he's given up on his responsibilities, the responsibilities of his position that call him to protect the land of uh, Middle-earth, and he's, he's done so for his own self-interest and greed. He's become a traitor to the very good that he's been called to preserve and to protect. And believing themselves in danger, the three friends, they, they, they try to attack this figure, but right away it's revealed to them that this is not Saruman. This is, this is Gandalf, the, the very one who they thought had died. And Gandalf the Grey has now become Gandalf the White, and he's the new head of the wizard order. And after his friends explain to him that they've mistaken him for Saruman, Gandalf says, Indeed, I am Saruman, one might almost say, Saruman as he should have been. In the same way, one can imagine the Magi of Matthew 2 saying, Indeed, I am Balaam, one might almost say, Balaam, as he should have been. Matthew 2 shows us the Magi as they always should have been. Magi were not meant to use the word of God for personal gain, as did Balaam, nor hoard the treasures of God for themselves, as did the Magi of Babylon. But here, here, we find the truly wise Magi. And so perhaps, actually, the best English translation is wise men. Because biblical wisdom is living rightly in God's created order. Wisdom is submitting ourselves to the actual pattern of reality created and sustained by God. And if magi are the wisest of persons, then this is wisdom as it should be. Seeking out and hearing God's word and offering our gifts to God in praise. So then, how is it that we can tie these threads together? Well, the star is very helpful here. And I believe that the star is the most fitting symbol to call the Magi to be what they should be. Whatever the ultimate reason, the star is a sign, I want to argue that it's actually the most superbly fitting sign that we could find. Because think about a star. Think about its, its movement. As God says and so does in the creation account of Genesis 1, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And one of the reasons that God has given us stars then is to mark times and seasons and years. And one of the reasons that stars are able to do this is because God has placed them in a circuit, that they run a kind of circular course. Stars come and go and come again. Where they are now, they will soon return. Where they are from, they will go back to. What we find here are our vast cosmological circles. And why is that important? Because here we have a picture of creation's relation to God. As Paul tells us in Romans 11, For from God and through him and to him are all things. 
All things, all of creation is from and through and to God. God creates and sustains all things, and all things are meant to be directed back to God. The word of God which Balaam tried to fight against, well, it's meant to bring us to the love and praise of God. The treasures of the temple which the Magi of Babylon stole, well, those are meant to be means by which we love and praise God. God has given his word the many treasures of creation. These are gifts that we receive from God, and they're meant to lead us back to the love and praise of God. However, Paul tells us of fallen humanity in Romans 1, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. We don't honor God nor give him thanks for all that he's given to and done for us. We claim to be wise, but actually, we're fools. Balaam and the Magi of Babylon may claim to be wise, but they are fools. They have not thanked, nor praised, nor honored God for the good gifts they've received, those treasures of creation and the wondrous word of God. Wisdom, however, is gratefully and gladly receiving the gifts of God and applying them to God in love, in honor, in thanksgiving, again, from God and through him and to him are all things. And this is the pattern of wisdom. And if the treasures of creation and the very word of God do not lead us back to God, then we have rejected wisdom. But again, the star is the most fitting sign to call the Magi to the proper role of their office, the roles rejected by Balaam and the Magi of Babylon. Stars move in a circular motion. A star ends where it begins. And this circular motion is also seen in the motion of creation, and its relation to God. A star is from and to this place. Creation is from and to God. From God and through him and to him are all things. The Magi of Matthew 2 are the Magi as they always should have been. They're truly wise. They've looked at the world that God has made, and they know that there's a God. They look at the beauty and order of the created world. They look at the deep ethical intuitions inside of their own conscience. They look at the longings for meaning and hope that they find within their own hearts. They see that they have received the great gift of life and the wonders of creation. And because of these things, they seek the creator. They seek God. And perhaps we can relate to an extent and perhaps we feel comfortable with the Magi as spiritual seekers. Let them seek God, but let each person find God in their own way. As a culture, maybe we're fine with seeking, but we're not so great. We don't feel so good about finding. Let the Magi seek, but who are they to say that they have definitely found God? Yet without the actual hope of finding the one true God, there's no point in seeking him in the first place. In The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis's great parable of heaven and hell, we find a very interesting conversation between two theologians, two very different theologians. And they're discussing this question of seeking and finding, the question of hope and its relation to God. One of the theologians says, For me, there is no such thing as a final answer. The free wind of inquiry must always continue to blow through the mind, must it not? To travel, hopefully, is better than to arrive. 
However, the, the other theologian answers, if that were true and known to be true, how could anyone travel hopefully? There would be nothing to hope for. Once you were a child, once you knew what inquiry was for, there was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and were glad when you found them. Thirst was made for water, inquiry for truth. We cannot forget that seeking is for finding, that traveling is for actually arriving at some particular place without any hope of actually finding the one true God. There's no hope for the spiritual seeker. The Magi seek God and they do so because they actually want to find God. But this means that they're going to have to move past generalities. The star can only bring them so far. Now they need to get more specific. Creation has much to teach us about God, but we can only get so far. As humans, the Magi know that there's a God. As humans, they know that God is worthy of honor and praise and worship. And as wise humans, they take this knowledge seriously, not ignoring it or suppressing it. And so what do they do? Well, they do what Balaam should have done long ago. They listen to and consult the word of God. They let it lead them because creation can tell us that God is, but it's scripture that tells us who God is. And so the Magi, they consult the chief priests, they consult the word of God, and they find that the Christ is to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And we find here an interesting contrast because the Magi receive the word of God from the Old Testament and they let it lead them to God. This is exactly what scripture is for. But the priests and scribes, they've become Balaam. They've sought to use the word of God for their own self-interest to ingratiate themselves to Herod, just like Balaam sought to ingratiate himself to Balak. Even more wondrous things are happening around these scribes and they don't seem to care they should be asking if perhaps the Christ truly has arrived. They should be out there seeking this child. Instead, all they do is sit back and give Herod the coordinates. And so we have to ask ourselves some questions. Do we believe that the promises of God will actually happen, or are we like the scribes too lost in distraction? Do you believe that you live in a world where great and wonderful things have happened and will happen again? God promised that the Christ would come, but the scribes did not really behave as if they thought this would be a historical reality. And God has promised that Christ will come again. Do we ourselves wake up every morning thinking, yes, maybe today, maybe today will be the day that Christ returns? Do you see every day as actually charged with that possibility? If not, ask yourself if you really believe it, functionally speaking. Or when you think of Christ's return, is it, is it more like a kind of storybook event in a time beyond time, but not in this actual historic reality that we every day inhabit with things like commutes and dishes and crying children and emails and deadlines and grocery lists? Do you believe that you live in a world where great and wonderful things have happened and will happen Again, there's a poem by, by W.H. Auden, the, the Musée des Beaux-Arts, which ends with a reflection on Peter Bruegel's painting, The Fall 
of Icarus. And the painting presents the classic myth of, of Icarus, who, you know, wax made wings, they melted, and they fell apart when he flew too close to the sun. And in the painting, Icarus is falling into the water amidst a scene of everyday life in a coastal village. And as the child splashes down near a large ship, the farmer continues farming, the shepherd continues shepherding, the sailor continues sailing. And of this painting, Auden writes, how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster. The plowman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry, but for him, it was not an important failure. The sun shone as it had to on the white legs disappearing into the green water. And the expensive, delicate ship that must have seen something amazing, a boy falling out of the sky, had somewhere to go and sailed calmly on. Auden tells us that we are prone to ignore amazing things because we, like the sailors, have something to do. We've got somewhere to go. Pay no mind to the, the child falling out of the sky. We'll be late with these shipments. We'll be late with these reports. We'll be late on those emails. We'll be late to taking our children to piano and baseball practice. And so perhaps we, like these sailors, have no time for amazing things. Things like the return of Christ, which also will come from the sky. Here, the chief priests and the scribes, they have no time to see this child. Instead, they must study the Bible. Irony of ironies. Not so the Magi. They have come to see this child from heaven who has not crashed, but condescended to earth. They know that something great and wonderful has happened, and they expected that something great and wonderful would happen. But again, the star can only bring us so far. Creation tells us that God is. Scripture must tell us who God is. And again, the star is a superbly fitting sign. The circular motion of the star reminds us all of the circular motion of creation. Creation is from and to God. But there's something else in Paul's doxology. From God and through him, and to him are all things. Yes, creation is from and to God, but it is also through God. And what does this mean? Well, again, let's go back to the fact that Scripture interprets Scripture, and the Gospel of John is very helpful here. As Christians, we believe in the Trinity that God exists as one divine nature in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in particular, John 1 tells us that God made all things. He created all things through his word, which is God the Son. And why is that important? Well, in this point, Augustine is particularly helpful. And Augustine tells us that all of creation was made through the Son, through the Word, and what that means is that the Son is the proper pattern of all creation. Think about it like this. The Son receives his being, the one divine nature, from the Father, and then turns back to the Father in the love of the Holy Spirit. To be the Son is to receive from the Father and then turn back to the Father in love. The Son receives and turns back in love. And all of creation is created through the sun, so the sun just is the proper pattern of creation. The sun is the mold that forms all of creation. 
The Son is from and to the Father. Creation is from and to God. From God and through him and to him are all things. And this answers for us an important question. Why was it that the Son and not the Father or the Holy Spirit became incarnate? Why didn't one of them become human? Well, it's because all creation was made through the Son, and the Son is the ultimate pattern of creation. When the Son becomes human, the Son becomes what he has always been the perfect pattern for humanity. The Son is like a beautiful landscape, and humanity is like a picture of this landscape. When we're actually in the landscape, we see depth and width and height. We smell the leaves, we feel the grass, we taste the air, we hear the breeze. When all of this is transposed onto a two-dimensional picture, we see the resemblance, we see the likeness, and we see how the picture reflects the landscape after which it was modeled. But we know that this picture is a picture of something greater and grander than the picture itself. We are the picture, and the sun is the actual breathtaking reality of this landscape. And so when the sun becomes human, he lives the perfect human life before God and neighbor, a life of full and complete wisdom. In fact, speaking of the relations of the son to the father and the love of the Holy Spirit, of the way that the son is from and to the father, the medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas will speak of, of circulation, of a circular movement. And following Aquinas, he tells us that this circular movement is reflected in all of creation. Again, we find the circular motion of the star, the circular motion of creation, the circular motion of the sun himself. The star is the most fitting sign to announce that the sun has become human, to announce that the eternal pattern has become the historical particular. And so here we have humanity as it should be. To alter the words of Gandalf and put them in the mouth of Christ, indeed, I am Adam, one might almost say, Adam as he should have been. And so this child is both Adam as he should have been and the one true God of Israel, so the Magi fall down before him in worship, giving him treasure and honor and thanks, and we should do the same. If all things are from and to God, let us offer our gifts back to God in honor and praise. Let us honor God with our resources. Let us give to the church and to other purposes of God. Let us also honor God in our daily work. Whatever vocation you daily give yourself to, whether it's in the home or the office, in the classroom, in the field, whatever context, I'd encourage you to find a group of Christian friends who share that vacation or vocation. Come together and discuss what does it mean to do this work to the glory of God. This is what the Magi do when they bring gold and frankincense. And the theologian Thomas Wyandini, he points out that the Christian tradition has long associated the gold with the kingship of Christ, frankincense with the worship of Christ as the frankincense is burned, the smoke, the aroma goes up to heaven. But the myrrh, the myrrh signifies something else. This sweet-smelling resin signifies something else. For the Christian tradition, this has long signified the anointing of Christ's body for death and burial. Myrrh represents this child's death. Recall Isaiah 60. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. 
We find mention here of the gold, we find mention of the frankincense, but do we find mention of the myrrh? Well, I believe that we do. Because what comes after gold and frankincense? The good news. Again, they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news. The magi shall bring gold, they shall bring frankincense, and most importantly, they shall bring good news. They shall bring the gospel. In bringing the myrrh, the magi are bringing the gospel. But how is this so? Well, to bring the myrrh is to anoint Christ for death and for burial. It's to praise the death of Christ, and even more deeply, it's to confess that you, not he, deserves this death and this burial. And it's to repent before God with the assurance of forgiveness. The Magi follow the circular motion of the star from and to God, but they can do so only by grace because by our own efforts, we are not a star. We are a black hole. We do not receive and offer back the light of God, but we keep it for ourselves. We're not like a rushing river that receives and gives water. We're like a stagnant pool. They and us, we are sinners. We receive the light and water of God's good gifts and we attempt to keep it for ourselves. This is not the pattern of the sun. This is the pattern of sin. All things are from and to God, but we act as if they are from and to us. But not this child, just as he is from and to the Father in eternity, so now in his humanity is he from and to God in history. The star has led the Magi to the one who formed the star in his own circular motion, the Son himself, and so Christ offers his full humanity back to God. Christ's whole life is a perfect offering to God, but as part of this offering, Christ must pay the penalty that we have merited for our sin. We have all been Balaam, Herod, and the scribes. We all have selfishly refused to honor and thank God for the good and gracious gifts he's given to us, most notably himself. And so Christ offers his very life to pay the debt of sin. And no amount of gold, no amount of frankincense can pay this debt, only myrrh. Only the death of this child, the death of God with us, the death of God become human. Because when we bring myrrh to Christ, we acknowledge his death on our behalf. We repent and rejoice in the mercy of God, confident in his forgiveness. Our myrrh is our faith. It's our trust in the gospel that our great golden king, who, does, who alone deserves to be worshipped with the rising frankincense of our praise, that he has died for us, that he has been anointed for burial by the myrrh of our confession and repentance. In bringing the myrrh of faith, we recognize that Christ, that this child can alone do what we cannot. In bringing the myrrh of faith, we recognize Christ alone is the one who can offer the full human life to God. To bring the myrrh of faith is not so much to make an offering to Christ, but to receive his offering as our own. To anoint Christ for death is to cling to his death as our only hope. By the myrrh of faith, we make Christ's perfect offering, his perfect receiving from and giving to God. We make that our own. In his perfect circular motion, he is the star that shall come out of Jacob. 
as the medieval theologian Anselm of Canterbury writes, what indeed can be conceived of more merciful than that God the Father should say to a sinner condemned to eternal torments and lacking any means of redeeming himself, take my only begotten Son and give him on your behalf, that the Son himself should say, take me and redeem yourself. Bring the myrrh of faith to Christ. Trust in the gospel and the good news that the Magi proclaim. Put your faith in this child. By faith, seize upon Christ and let Christ be your offering of a perfect, thankful, and honoring human life to God. And when we place our faith in Christ, when we bring the myrrh of our faith before him, may we hear Christ say to us, Indeed, I am you, one might almost say, you as you should have been, and indeed, you as you one day shall be. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for bringing our salvation through your Son. We thank you, Lord, that you have given him as an offering that we can make our own. We thank you, Lord, that he has lived the perfect human life of wisdom on our behalf and by myrrh, Father God, let us claim that offering as our own. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.